Again, we run that through first grade, and you guys are more than welcome to take your children uh, back there now. And for those of you that, uh, whose kids are staying in the service with us, um, we, we genuinely love having kids in the service, and we, we do not mind the noise. And so I'm happy that they're here. And again, we do have the children's ministry bulletin that they are more than welcome uh, to utilize. Uh, we've been going through uh, our Confession of Faith, the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, and just reading through it, um, just um, paragraph by paragraph, uh, to keep it in front of um, in front of you all. And this morning, we're going to end chapter 3 by reading paragraph 7. And chapter 3 has to do, um, it's everything to do with God's eternal decree before uh, he had made all things. And so our triune God's eternal decree. And, and so this is paragraph seven. It says, the doctrine of this high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence and care that men attending the will of God revealed in his word and yielding obedience thereunto may, from the certainty of their effectual vocation, be assured of their eternal election. So we see eternal security, a focal point. So shall this doctrine afford matter of praise, reverence, and admiration of God, and of humility, diligence, and abundant consolation to all that sincerely obey the gospel. So that concludes chapter 3 of the 1689 as it relates to God's decree. But if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the gospel of Mark, uh, particularly Mark chapter 3. And so last week we began uh, looking at the, these controversies surrounding uh, the Sabbath, and this morning we're going to be looking at another controversy uh, regarding the Sabbath as well. And I'm going to read through uh, verse 12 uh, of, of chapter 3 here. I'm not going to um, preach every one of these verses this morning. Uh, I'm going to focus uh, mostly on verses 1 to six, okay, and so that that's going to be my my focal point this morning. But I, I think it was important for us to to read all twelve verses uh, together. And so let me read, and then I'm going to pray, and then we will, um, by God's grace, work through this text together. And so John Mark, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, he penned these words. It says, "And he, speaking of Christ, he entered the synagogue again, and a man was there." who had a withered hand. So they watched him closely, okay, speaking of the, the religious leaders, okay, the Pharisees here, they watched him closely, whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man who had the withered hand, step forward. Then he said to them, Jesus said this to, to the assembly, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill. They kept silent. And when he had looked around at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out. And his hand was restored as whole as the other. For six. Then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great multitude from Galilee followed him, from Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and beyond the Jordan, and those from Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude, when they heard how many things he was doing, came to him. So he told his disciples 
that a small boat should be kept ready for him because of the multitude, lest they should crush him. For he healed many, so that as many as had afflictions pressed about to touch him. And the unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, fell down before him. They cried out. And I love the power of Christ displayed here. Right? They, these, these demonic spirits cried out, You are the Son of God. But he sternly warned them that they should not make him known. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you again for just the ability we have to open your word and, and read it. And Lord, even in opening it, we ask that you would grant us humility to see what it is that we need to see. God, that you would shape us, shape our hearts according to your word. And we trust you and we love you in Christ's name. Amen. Now, according to the, the gospel of, of Luke, and, and just by way, and I'll, I'll try to remember to, to do this, but the other accounts you know, for, for the other gospels, uh, uh, as, it, as it relates to what I just read, you, you see this account in Matthew chapter uh, 12, verses 9 to 16, if you're looking to cross-reference, and you also see this in Luke chapter 6, verses 6 to 11. And, and Luke... Um, it says that this was a different Sabbath. So this isn't the same Sabbath day that we looked at uh, last week. Yet, we see in our text this morning that this is yet another controversy regarding the Sabbath. And, and this is the, the fifth conflict that Jesus had with these religious leaders that uh, so far recorded by John Mark. And again, the, the, the collision, and what we need to remember is the collision isn't due to uh, Christ uh, violating the enduring moral law of God. That's not what the collision is about, but the collision rather is about these kind of pharisaical and legalistic uh, customs and practices that have been elevated practically to uh, thus saith the Lord. It's been kind of treated, you know, and it's fitting for us even to spend two weeks here, right? That was one of the issues that, um, that caused the Reformation, is that customs and traditions of man were being elevated to the status of thus saith the Lord. And, and when that happens, even a good tradition, even a good con, uh, custom, when it's elevated to that status, it becomes enslaving uh, and, and it begins to cloud uh, the gospel. It begins to say things like, in order to be right with God, you must do fill in the blank. Right? And, and so that it's a, it's a gospel issue. It's not something to be taken lightly. And so, so we see this collision here with Jesus and these religious leaders who are trying to enforce particular customs and practices uh, on, uh, on people. And in this time, this conflict, this fifth conflict, it, it escalates to the point of a plot uh, being... Um, uh, the, the religious leaders gathering with the, uh, Herod, uh, the Herodians to, to murder Jesus, to kill the Son of God. That's where this fifth conflict ends up leading. Now, last week we saw that because the Sabbath is made for man, and because Christ is the Lord of the Sabbath, he's the one that has the authority 
to clarify for us its purpose. In fact, it's Christ alone that has the authority to give meaning to the Sabbath. So last week we saw that Jesus, he didn't abolish the fourth commandment. That's not what Christ did in the new covenant. Instead, he brought understanding to what we determined is a creation mandate. And, 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 and the, the, the understanding he brought to it is that this sh- it should be worship-driven rest, okay? Both, both spiritual rest and physical rest, okay? And again, we, we see it being a creation mandate in Genesis chapter 2, verse 3, okay? And, and this rest should be done as unto the Lord. And, and as Christians, we, we should want to be a people who uh, desire to honor the fourth commandment. We should want to be Sabbath keepers. We want to be able to avail ourselves of the, the, the various blessings from God as we gather each Lord's Day, as we gather on the Christian Sabbath and rest in light of the resurrection of Jesus. So we rest in, in light of the rest that God in Christ Jesus has acquired for us, and we rest in light of the coming eternal rest that that we'll enjoy in the new heavens and then in the new earth when Christ returns and in his second advent makes, makes everything new. Now, as we looked at our, our passage last week, as we, we looked at the, the, the end of Mark chapter 2, we began to notice two types of work, okay? two, two types of labor that's glorifying to God and, and acceptable and even commendable on the Sabbath. Okay, we, we had the first one illustrated for us last week, and that, that relates to, and, and if you're jotting down notes, you could shorthand this. It related to works of necessity, in case uh, you didn't catch that last week. Okay, and, and, and works of necessity is, is this laboring, okay, because there's a, a, a genuine need, something that if left unaddressed, it would be bad. Okay, we, we saw that it was necessary for the disciples to reap grain in, in the grain fields that they were walking through, to reap grain for sustenance. And it was even permissible, according to the book of Deuteronomy, according to the law of Moses, that the disciples were able to do so. And there was a real hunger there. There was a, a real need, unlike what we experience uh, regularly. Okay? And Jesus communicates that, that, there, that the disciples had a genuine need by comparing what the disciples were doing with what David and his men did in 1 Samuel, which was eat of the showbread, eat of the bread of presence. They did that because they were starving, and they were able to do that without it violating the ceremonial law. So just by way of reminder, that's how Jesus last week defended what the disciples were doing on the Sabbath day. It was a work of necessity. Now this week, we see another permissive work done on the Sabbath, and that's an act of mercy, if you wanted to jot that down. Okay, and, and this is a genuine God-glorifying kindness. Okay, a genuine God-glorifying kindness. And the Puritan, Matthew Henry, he calls this work a moral duty. He calls it a moral duty. And when we, heard, when we hear that word duty, we should think of, of, of obligation. And we should think of, of obligation. It's a moral duty to do good to one's neighbor. And the evidence of that Right, is found in the on the second table of the law, the back six commandments. Right, we don't see our neighbor in need. Right, we don't see our neighbor suffering and say something like, "Well, it's the Lord's day. You know, it's, it's the Christian Sabbath, and 
and I don't want to do any work, so they're just going to have to suffer until Monday. Right? That's not a, a Christian response at all. Right? That, that's what a Pharisee would do, as evidenced by our text this morning. But that's not what a Christian would do. That's not what Christ would do. Right? If, we, if we see an urgent need and we see a tangible way to glorify God by loving our neighbor, we act. Okay? That's a most excellent Sabbath Labor, And we see that in Jesus' healing of the man with the withered hand. We look at a text like what we have this morning, and we should ask ourselves the question, who honored the Sabbath? If that's the issue, who honored the Sabbath in the text? Is it Christ that honored the Sabbath? Or is it the Pharisees who stood by? This man is suffering and didn't move a muscle. Of course, we know the answer to that. Right? It's Christ. So, so we should conclude from, from our text last week and, and even just ha- having a read-through of our text this morning that both of these labors, works of necessity and works or acts of mercy, are legitimate labors on the Sabbath and are, again, they're glorifying to God. And our confession, the 1689, captures this well, actually, in chapter 22 of the confession, specifically paragraph 8 of chapter 22, we see the phrase, duties of necessity and mercy, as legitimate Sabbath leaders. And in the footnote of that paragraph, because the entire confession is footnoted with passages of Scripture, not, not as proof text so much as to demonstrate uh, a mindfulness of, of, of considering the whole counsel of God's Word when coming to particular doctrinal conclusions. But in the footnote of that paragraph, we see both of these encounters that we've been covering over the last two weeks. We see those encounters reference the grain fields and the healing of the man with a withered hand. So, so with that kind of as our, our, our backdrop, if you will, or our banner, if you will, let's move closer to this passage of Scripture. And in doing so, we're going to note three different things that you'll find in your takeaways this morning, in your bulletin. And the first is this. And kids, if you're taking notes, again, you can look on with your mom and dad uh, if you need help kind of filling in the, the blank here. But the first thing that, that we need to see together is this. Jesus restores in us what the curse has corrupted. Jesus restores in us what the curse has corrupted. Okay, look look back at verse 1. It's there that we're we're introduced to a man simply known. We don't have his name. We We know this man as, quote, a man who had a withered hand. That's what we know. A, a, a paralyzed hand. Kids, I mean, his hand, his hand didn't move right. It didn't function like his other hand. And, and we should, again, if we're keeping in mind the whole counsel of God's Word as we're reading this, and we should effort to do that when we're reading Scripture, or we could deduce from that, that that the hand is not working. It wasn't working the way God originally designed hands to work. Right when when He created the world and He called everything that He created, what good. Right. Furthermore, we're, we're, if we're looking at this text, we're not we're not in our text this morning, Mark chapter three. We're not given any reason why this man has a withered, paralyzed, kind of immobile hand, but. 
Again, if we're looking at it, mindful of the whole counsel of God's Word, as we read this account, we know the first cause of it. We know what the first cause as to why this man had a withered hand, why that's the case. And it's because the sin of Adam right, introduced sin into the world and thus suffering and decay and death into that world that God called good. Right? So the disobedience of Adam begins to, uh, it, it causes, there's this event that happens that begins to distort and disfigure all of those, all of God's creation, which when God finished creating, he declared good. Right? It was the first Adam who upon disobeying the command from the Lord not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he immediately became, upon doing that, accustomed to sorrow and shame and pain. And in Genesis there, you see the first death. You can see the first death, the death of an animal that the Lord would use to cover Adam and Eve's nakedness. That's the first cause as we're reading it. Again, not getting the the nitty-gritty details about the man's particular situation. We know as Christians that's the first cause behind the man's withered hand here in Mark, even though we don't Again, know his particular story. We know that this hand is corrupted because we have all been impacted and corrupted by the fall of Adam. And this isn't just a spiritual corruption. This isn't just a marring of the image of God in our lives, the Imago Dei, right? A part of that whole piece is a physical corruption too. So it's not just spiritual consequence. It's physical consequence, right? Death did not exist prior to the fall of Adam. Right? Death, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, is an enemy, the last enemy to be defeated by Christ in his second advent. So the curse that was introduced at the disobedience of Adam is the first cause that, uh, uh, behind the, this, uh, this paralyzed, this, this, this man with this, this crippled hand. And we see Christ in our text. He restores it by speaking. And, 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 and he, he restores it by commanding the man to stretch his hand. Something maybe that that man had never been able to do. Perhaps he was born with a paralyzed hand, with a withered hand. We don't, again, we don't know. But this man who was not able to utilize his hand was commanded by Christ, to stretch it out. And I love that this healing took place on the Sabbath. It's it's fitting that it took place on the Sabbath. It's this Sabbath, this particular Sabbath, preserved by the Holy Spirit of God in these particular sacred pages of Scripture that gives us this dim picture, if you will, just this dim picture of what eternity will ultimately be. Right? The man with the crippled hand, he experienced the presence of Christ. He experienced the nearness of Christ. And he experienced a complete transformation of his hand. Right? It goes from cursed, broken, withered, paralyzed, and evidence of the far-reaching nature of the curse to, as our text says, whole which means sound or healthy. Now, 
This is, a, as I said, a dim picture, right? This man's not in his glorified body. This man would still face that enemy, death. But Jesus gives us a picture of what our Sabbath should point us toward, right? What it should point us toward, what it should direct us toward. And I love just how thoroughly Jesus makes all things new. I love just how thorough he is. If Jesus healed this man with the paralyzed hand, how much more does Jesus restore in us, spiritually speaking, all that the curse has distorted, all that the curse has corrupted, all that the curse has paralyzed and and perverted in our very souls? The author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus saved us to the uttermost. The uttermost. Right? In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, it says, Therefore he, okay, he's speaking of Christ here, is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. I, I love that word, uttermost. Right? And that word uttermost, it means, it means to the full extent. It means to a, a complete degree. Right? So, so nothing, absolutely nothing, is left out. Right? Nothing goes to waste. That, that's the extent of Christ's redeeming work. That's the extent of Christ's salvific work. He thoroughly saves us. He saves our souls from an eternal hell. Right? By acquiring forgiveness for us through His shed blood, He justifies us. And again, I said it earlier in the service this morning, His, just, his resurrection is proof that, that, that we are in fact justified. The Holy Spirit of God, He, he gives to us the righteousness of Christ and, and He seals our election, He seals our inheritance, the, the inheritance that Christ alone has earned, which means our souls are saved to the uttermost. But that includes for us not just the redemption of our soul, but also the redemption of our body. Right? It also includes the redemption of our body. Ultimately, when God in Christ returns, our bodies will go from withered, like the man's hand in our text, to glorified, to having the Imago Dei, the image of God, finally restored, to be finally conformed into the image of Christ. Right? We're made, as Christians, we confess it, we're made, we're dichotomous, we're made body and soul. Right? We don't look at the material as evil, as some prison that the soul's trying to escape, and we don't look at, um, we, don't, we don't see ourselves uh, solely as, as body, as some Darwinian experiment. We're body and soul. Right? And the fall as we see this morning, has impacted us body and soul. And our triune God cares about both. He cares about both. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul here. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I'd encourage you to read the entire chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 to 22. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. You see what the Holy Spirit of God is speaking through the Apostle Paul, right? 
If in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. This isn't just spiritual life, even though we were spiritually raised with Christ in His resurrection. That's certainly in view. But there's also a physical nature to this. Again, the entire chapter of 1 Corinthians 15 is dealing with the glorious, eternal, bodily resurrection of Christ. And Paul is arguing in that chapter that we will resurrect like Him because we share union with Him. Right? That if Christ has bodily resurrected, then we are guaranteed to bodily resurrect from the dead. Right? Our lives are inseparably connected with our Savior, with Christ. And He redeems us to the uttermost. Everything that has been cursed by the fall. And so we get this glimpse on this particular Sabbath day. Right? 2,000 plus years ago. We get this glimpse of the comprehensive nature of Christ's person and Christ's work. He created us body and soul. He redeems us body and soul. So it's the first thing. The second thing that we notice in, in, in this passage is pride. Right? Pride, it, it's sinister. Pride, it turns you calloused. It turns you unfeeling. It turns you cruel. And this, this is what happens when... Pride isn't confronted. And not, and not just confronted. This is what happens when pride isn't subdued. Is it when pride isn't taken captive. And if you look back at the text, you can see just how calloused these religious leaders are. And, and we should note that that has been nurtured in them for a long time. But look back at verse 3 with me for a moment. <laughs> Jesus, in verse 3, he tells the man with the withered hand to step forward. He says, step forward. Now, if Jesus was teaching at the synagogue, and, and he, probably, he probably was, right, then Jesus would have brought this man to the front of the, the assembly, if you will, in, in front of these religious leaders included here. Right? Step forward means become visible. Right? Let them see you. Get in front of everybody. And according to Luke's gospel, right, if we were to cross-reference this, you would see that Jesus does this. He tells the man to step forward after reading the minds of the religious leaders. In verse 8 of Luke chapter 6, Luke, Luke said, he, speaking of Christ, knew their thoughts. And again, and I, I think I've said this as it related to another passage like this. This isn't Jesus just being good at reading body language. This is him and his divinity reading the minds and the thoughts and the intentions of these religious leaders. Okay, But Think of the coldness here, these religious leaders, as you're looking at the text with me. Right, there's somebody who's suffering, and again, he's been brought forward, he's been made visible to this assembly, and thus these religious leaders, um, and, and that suffering of his, that withered hand, that paralyzed hand, it's made public. It's made public. Right, now, if I were to bring each one of you this morning and make you visible, to put you in front of the church body here and, and said, hey, make your suffering known. All right, a right response for us as a church body would be mourning. Right? It would be mourning. It would be lamenting. It would be praying, perhaps fasting. 
on behalf of the individuals that are suffering. Right? The right response, overarchingly speaking, would be compassion. Right? Especially in light of us being a church body. Right? Paul reminds us in, in the book of 1 Corinthians, he says, if one member suffers, this is, our, this is the union that we have with one another. If one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. But this man's brought forward in in the response of the Pharisees. Again, if you're looking at the text with me, the response of the Pharisees, it's silence. It's silence. It's a waiting like a predator to pounce on Christ if he breaks their customs. That's what the concern is here. There is no sight for, for neighbor here. And there can be no sight and love for neighbor in the biblical sense when Christ isn't reverenced and honored and worshipped. Where there should be compassion, where there should be warmth, where there should be an eagerness, a joyful eagerness, if you will, to, to meet a need, it's met with this harsh, cold, judgmental silence. These men were waiting, our text says they were waiting to, quote, accuse they're waiting to accuse. Right now, what does that word that Mark uses here, that word accuse, what does that remind you of? Hey, it reminds me of Satan, who's called the accuser in Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. He's called the accuser of the brethren, is what he's called. And it's interesting to me that Jesus elsewhere, he calls these religious leaders elsewhere the sons of, does anybody know? Of Satan. The sons of Satan. He says in John chapter 8, verses 43 to 48, he says, Why do you not understand my speech? And this is a rhetorical. He's not actually, he's gonna, he answers the question. Because you're not able to listen to my word. You are of your father, the devil. And the desires of your father, you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in truth because there's no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources. For he's a liar, and he's the father of it. The father of lies. We imitate our fathers, right? Generally speaking, we want to be like our dads. Or we've had a really bad experience, and we go the other way, right? But generally speaking, there, there is this draw in us to imitate our fathers. And we're either imitator... We're either an imitator of the father of lights. This is how James puts it in James chapter 1, verse 17. Or we're the imitator of the father of the Pharisees, who's called in the book of Ephesians, chapter 6, verse 12, the devil who's the prince of darkness. The response of these religious leaders was a a fulfillment, really, of Psalm chapter 37, verse 32. Quote, the wicked watches the righteous and seeks to slay him. Right? The wicked watches the righteous and seeks to slay him. And our text says in verse 5, it says that the, the hearts of these religious leaders, it says that they were, they were hard. Right? There's a hardness of heart here. In the moment that Christ healed this man, we see in verse, verse 6 that they left immediately and they plotted against him. They plotted <clears throat> to kill him. And, and that phrase there, 
that Mark uses, hardness of heart. It, it literally means callous or devoid of feeling or devoid even of mental awareness, which harmonizes well with Christ's accusation of them in John chapter 8. Now, as we read what happened so many years ago, as we read this account here, this true account, right, we, we should feel anger toward the Pharisees. Right? We even see Jesus exhibit righteous anger, and we'll talk about that briefly in just a moment, toward the Pharisees here. And we should have anger toward these religious leaders. We should, we should be able to see clearly from our text the difference between what's right and what's wrong and who's, who's right and, and who's wrong. But what we shouldn't miss at the same time is that this is our state apart from the intervening work of Jesus Christ. Right? That same callousness that same hardness, that, that same following of the prince of darkness is our path apart from Jesus. Do you have your Bibles? Turn with me to uh, Ephesians chapter 2 just quickly. Ephesians chapter 2. You'll read the first several verses here. And the Apostle Paul telling the church of Ephesus, reminding them of this glorious gospel. It says, in you, okay, to the saints at Ephesus, but also you, dear part fellowship, right? He made, Christ made, alive, who were dead, not struggling, not not not, not remotely concerned. A dead person's not remotely concerned about the state of their being, right? We're dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in who? The sons of disobedience, right? Their father, the devil, among whom also we, and this is, this is very inclusive here, we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature, this is our default position, children of what? Of wrath, just as the others. And then verse 4, I'm thankful for this, but God, who's rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He's loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up together and made us to sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come He might show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works. He's making sure you know you have nothing whatsoever to do with your salvation, right? Not of works, lest anyone should boast. If we had anything to do with our salvation, we could brag about it. There's no bragging rights in the kingdom of God. Right? Not of works, lest anyone should boast, for we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. Right? And we've been looking at that in chapter 3 of our confession, beforehand that we should walk in them. And again, I've made mention of this already, but 
right, these solas that were recovered in the Reformation 505 years ago, what a re-articulation of apostolic doctrine, meaning what we see in Scripture is that grace alone, by faith alone, grace alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, that you've been saved, and we know that because Scripture alone, our final authority, tells us. And certainly the Spirit of God living in us says yes and amen to the text that we see here. So grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Right? All that we are is by the grace of God alone. There's, there's no room for pride in our lives. And we should see that that callousness, that hardness of heart that's exhibited in the Pharisees, the very same heart posture we had before Christ intervened, God in Christ intervened in our lives. And the last thing for us to see this morning is a bit of a lesson in Bible interpretation. When interpreting the Scripture, remember Christ is always central. Just a kind of a foundational way that we should be reading our, our Scripture, and we see that demonstrated even for us in, in Mark's Gospel. But it's Christ that claimed that all the law and all the prophets testified about him. We see that in Luke chapter 24, verses 44, right? Law and prophets is a summary of the Old Testament. Okay? And in this very act of healing in our text, right, the man and the miracle are not center stage. I don't know if you noticed that when we were working through it. But the man and the miracle that happened, they're not center stage. If we look at the whole account again, and I'm just... just a uh, 20,000 foot view here, right? We see Christ is being watched closely in verse 2, not the man, right? So even in the disobedience and the scheming of the religious leaders, it's Christ that they're watching, right? We see Christ speaking with authority in this passage of Scripture. We see Mark documenting Christ's response of anger and grief. We see Christ is the one that does the healing work through the commanding of the stretching of a hand. We see that Jesus is the one in verses 7 and 9 that's being followed by a great multitude, Right, we see unclean spirits testifying in verse 11 that Christ is the Son of God and Christ sternly commanding silence from them. Right? The, the person of Christ, as we should see every single Lord's Day, and this should set um, the tone for our spiritual lives, right? Christ will not be pushed to the peripheral. He will not be pushed to the peripheral. The Holy Spirit of God won't allow for that. In fact, one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to testify about Christ, which is, means to glorify Christ. And he does that to us through the Scripture. And we see, we see again, that role of the Holy Spirit in John chapter 16, verse 14. Right? That's, what, that's what the Holy Spirit of God does uh, as we read any passage of Scripture if we're prayerfully depending upon him as we read it and as we interpreted it. But I want us to see this, this illustrated for us even more this morning than just giving you kind of, a, again, just a high-level outline. Right? Mark is a good example for us because Mark was in, inspired by the Holy Spirit, right? But he uses this issue of the Sabbath to teach us several things. And again, he doesn't record everything that happens. But in Mark's immediate form, right, he's kind of brass tacks as we, as we have noted throughout this series together. He shows us in this text again the two natures 
of Jesus Christ. Right? And, and we've seen this several times already just in the first three chapters of the Gospel of Mark. We see Mark ensuring that we, because he, he documented this to testify about Christ, that we see Christ as truly man and as truly God. Right? Christ, His person, His work, it's central. We see in our text the, the righteous, incorruptible anger of Jesus. We see in our text that Jesus is grieved, the text says, about the hardness, the callousness of these religious leaders. And in that, we see that Christ is truly man. Right? In his humanity, he experienced grief. Right? In his humanity, he experienced anger, but a righteous anger. Right? St. Augustine said of this passage, he says, We read about the diversity of his feelings in the reports of the same evangelists, reading through, who attested his divinity. Jesus was astonished. He was angered. He was grieved. He was elated in similar emotive responses without number. Likewise, it's clear that he experienced the ordinary, fully human experience of interconnectedness between his body and his soul. He was hungry. He slept. He was tired from his journey. Right? And again, we see this come up over and over again as we study Mark because it's central to our Christian faith. Right? Christ, who is eternal God, took on frail human flesh. Right? Christ was made human so that he might seek us, so that he might save us. And we need to note these things every time we see them and not grow desensitized to them right? because it should shape and bolster our very confession surrounding who Jesus Christ is. Right? So he's truly man. He's also truly God. Right? And we see that further evidenced for us, not just in Christ reading the minds of the religious leaders as Luke records it, but in the actual healing of the man with the withered hand. That's a testimony to his divinity, right? That, on, that God alone, not man, God possesses the authority to heal. And in this healing, Christ, he again, he reasserts that the Sabbath was made to do good, not to do evil and not to do nothing, but to do good. So we see even in this healing, right, the, the, the healing, it isn't the main event. Just as us one day being rid of sin and receiving a glorified body isn't the main event right, or the main thing. All right, what makes the healing glorious is that Christ is present. What, what, makes, what will make our resurrection glorious and the new heavens and the new earth glorious is that Christ will be present. I remember years ago, my wife read a book about the new heavens and the new earth, and it sounded great, except it was missing one crucial thing, and that was our triune God in it. It was practically a footnote in it. Right? And all those things that we look forward to, being rid of sickness, being rid of sorrow, being rid of suffering, being rid of death, all of those things pale in comparison to being present with our triune God for all eternity. And the same thing goes for Scripture. What makes Scripture glorious from Genesis to Revelation is that the Scripture testifies in total about Jesus Christ. And if the Scriptures testify about Christ, then there's no place in Scripture where He's irrelevant. There's no place in Scripture in which Christ is to be pushed to the side. There's no place in Scripture that we read and pretend that Christ isn't there. 
from the very opening of the book of Genesis, in the beginning, there is our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And if Christ is central to our reading and to our interpreting of Scripture, we'll begin to see more and more clearly in our own lives that He's central in our lives. Why don't we go to the Lord in prayer? God, we thank You for allowing us to gather again this morning. And Lord, we do thank You that that Christ won't be pushed to the sidelines, God. And we ask, God, that by Your Spirit and through Your Word, Lord, that, that He will become day by day clearer to us in our daily walking with You. And we love You. And we trust you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the portion of our service where we come to the